welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we're talking with Tommy Jackson, the creator, director, and DP of the Last of Us fan film, Ellie's Revenge, which currently has uh, over a million views on the old YouTubes. He's also created a follow-up film, um, They Will Come, another Last of Us uh, fan film. He also has a bunch of other shorts uh, on his YouTube channel. In this episode, Tommy and I talk about you know, how one goes about adapting a uh, video game into a film, even a short. You know, we definitely talk about the uh, various failures that have happened on, in the uh, Hollywood system. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, mental struggles, not like mental health necessarily, but, you know, like the uh, sort of uh, personal hurdles that one has to become, uh, one has to overcome to become a filmmaker or any creative for that matter. You know, we talk about um, gear, certainly. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So, um, you know, especially if you're a Black Magic guy, Tommy's a big Black Magic guy. He uh, he named his sort of YouTube channel Hollywood or um, Indie Black Magic. So, uh, you know, pun there. <laughs> but yeah, this is a real uh, fun one. Um, and especially if you're a, a gamer, uh, like I am, um, I think you'll enjoy the intersection of... Uh, video game storytelling and uh, uh, filmmaking that we talk about. So yeah, without further, uh, without any ados to be furthered, here is my conversation with Tommy Jackson. What got you into cinematography? Were you specifically trying to get into cinematography or were you kind of just overall filmmaking? Did you go to film school? Yeah, I went to film school. I actually um, was and still am pursuing a, a directing. So when I was in high school, I took a creative film class. That's what really got me into filmmaking. And pretty much the assignment was they gave us a camera, little camera quarter back in 2010. And um, they were like, okay, we want you to go out, make a music video, just, you know, on your own, <clears throat> get some friends together and make something. So that's kind of like where I first was a director. And as a director, I also shot it. I produced it. I edited it. Um, and kind of through that process, I just fell in love with every aspect of it. Um, and kind of from that point on, whenever I kind of, I was a director, I correlated that with being a cinematographer as well. So I would shoot the stuff I did also edit it. And it just went on and on. Um, and then finally I got into film school. <clears throat> Sorry. I went to uh, UNCSA in North Carolina. Um, and I wanted to pursue directing as my major. Um, you know, they, they had cinematography and editing and all that, but I felt that directing was kind of my main pursuit. And I, like I said, I always felt that even if I was to be a director, I would always want to be hands-on no matter what. Um, so I was like, I'm going to just go for directing. Um, I was able to get into the program. So the way the school works is after your second year, you kind of like audition and they choose out of the maybe 90 students, they kind of choose and disperse them into their major. Um, and I got into directing and I was pleased because the directing classes was the same type of thing. It's like, go out, shoot something, edit it, direct it, you know, something that's along some sort of story. They would give us prompts. Um, and, you know, I would I would go back to Chicago during breaks and I would make my own independent films. Um, actually going into college, one of the things I sent on my portfolio was a Last of Us fan film I made in high school. Um, and that was probably my biggest project I'd ever done. And that's what really 
kind of, I mean, The Last of Us was always an amazing story and video game that I was obsessed with. And, you know, making that really kind of spurred just my like need and want to keep creating those type of films. Um, but, you know, through college, I, I focused on other things and it wasn't really until, you know, this past year, this past year, year and a half that I really was like, you know what? It's been a long time. I have a lot of equipment. I have a lot of skills. You know, I know people. I, I think that tackling this again would be really, really fun and it would be really rewarding. So, yeah. yeah. When you were uh, coming up, were there any sort of, uh, you know, filmmakers that inspired you or people or uh, films even um, specifically that kind of made you want to become a filmmaker? Because I know for a lot of people, you know, this seems to be kind of two schools of thought. There's like, yeah, you know, I was into Ingmar Bergman when I was 12. And then other people who are like, I saw Jackass 3D and I thought that was fun. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I I kind of went through phases and this was mainly growing up like, you know, through high school when I was able to see all types of movies, you know, um, because I was getting to that age that I could see our movies and all that stuff. And my parents didn't give a shit. Um, but I was really into Quentin Tarantino growing up as most pretty much every high school guy is. Um, I, I always grew up loving Steven Spielberg. I was a huge Saving Private Ryan fan. Um, just pretty much like I kind of, I kind of like checked the list of all the kind of stereotypical big directors, but this is why I say like when I played the last of us, the first game that came out. For me, that was a bigger inspiration for me as a filmmaker, director, and storyteller than any movie I'd ever seen. Like the way that that project was directed, the way everything was lit, shot, and acting, that was more inspiring to me than any film I had seen. Now, I mean, I, I love movies. I watch them all the time still. But back then, that was kind of where everything clicked for me. And I felt like this is the type of style, this is the type of just... Um, energy of, of a film essence of a film that I want to create. Um, and I, cause all these other films I loved, but I didn't necessarily want to try to be like them. They didn't necessarily inspire me. And I felt that because they were so good at what they already did, I just kind of wanted to step away and everyone already, already talked about them. But for me, the last of us, so I guess Neil Druckmann, Druckmann, he was the director um, of that. That was just for me, the biggest impact on my cinematic career. And through college, actually, the first year we did a bunch of little, um, basically the projects we would do and we would do it on, do them on sound stages and you'd have to write a little script and get a couple kids in the class and they'd like rotate who was directing and whatnot. And I would always write a scene from the game and then do that for the projects because I always felt that was more powerful. And my directing teachers would always be like, what movie are you going to use? And I'm like, I'm not using a movie. <laughs> I'm using a game. And they're like, what? So that was just kind of honestly, most of my, I think that was the biggest impact I've had as a, as a filmmaker storyteller. So, you know, it's two things. First one is I, I actually did the same thing. I stole a scene from uh, one of the Metal Gear Solid movies or oh, games rather. See, awesome. so I went, I uh, graduated college in 2012. Mm. So uh, at that point there weren't too, too, too many um, like cinematic video games. There was plenty of like really good storytelling in video games, but like Uncharted had just come out yeah, around yeah. that time. And everyone was like, holy shit, it's like watching a real. But um, the other thing that I thought was funny was in our uh, second episode, 
Um, I interviewed uh, Josh Richards. He shot Nomadland. I don't know if you know of. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard um, Chloe Zhao got the Oscar for it, um, and he was saying that like we were talking about inspirations and stuff, and he was saying that video games to him are like where storytelling is kind of really going to um, explode and kind and kind of like that's the vanguard now. He said uh, for. Um, storytelling because you you can spend it i'm putting words in his mouth now but like my my impression was like you can spend so much more time with the characters you can you know it's more like a book yeah or a play exactly. you can spend a lot more time with them mm-hmm. it's it's crazy it's like that's why it's so funny is for me video games have been my biggest inspiration for storytelling and as an artist but i don't want to make video games i want to make films so that's why it's so funny it's like a weird little circle um because i you know i still to this day like games that come out, obviously The Last of Us Part Two, like all these games that come out, um, Ghost of Tsushima, like there's so many incredibly, you know, just at this point, it's so realistic. It's so vivid. Like everything they make just, it, it feels almost more genuine than a film does to me. Um, and I just love the stories that are told. And, and there's something about like how they can just literally explore anything sort of basically like animation because it's not, actually physically real they can create anything that just like it goes to every facet of my creative mind you know it's it's i love it so um do you i mean obviously there's been a lot of bad video game film (laughs) adaptations uh when i was a younger uh max Payne was like the first one that i remember coming out and we were like wow that was dog shit yeah um what do you think are kind of some of the problems or maybe some of the things you ran into when trying to adapt a video game story or structure or whatever to, which is inherently an interactive medium to, um, you know, film, which is a passive medium, you know, like Metal Gear Solid four. I think I remember when they advertised that game, they were like, there's an hour of cutscenes," And we were like, wow, holy shit. That's a lot of cutscenes." But come to find out they meant there's one, one hour cutscene amongst yeah. all the other cutscenes, And if you watch all of them in a row, it still doesn't feel like a film because you're missing all the parts that like you are yeah. partaking in, you know? Yeah. Um, for me, so for me, the main thing, which is I was like, this is either going to make or break the film. And actually this, this kind of goes back to the first film I made, which was Ellie's revenge. So I made that one. Um, we released that five months ago, right before they will come. Um, and starting out with doing this fandom filmmaking, the first biggest thing is I was like, we need, to have actors that look like the characters. We need to have actors that are able to at least like be comparable in performance, like at least honor what they're doing and not be like so cringy that it's like too goofy. I feel that a lot of recreations of video games and in professional film in Hollywood, I mean, every time they've dropped the ball because I feel the casting sucks. Um, the performances just don't match at all what the game was. And it kind of like, you kind of have to find this weird gray line of like matching performances without wanting to copy. It's like, you know, cause you want to honor it, right? It's creating a live action video game. You're, it's a very nostalgic and like euphoric experience for gamers and people who want to watch that. And it almost kind of gives it a pass. Like they want to see the perfect, you know, replication recreation of those characters. And that was the thing it was probably the hardest at the beginning, but for Ellie's revenge, you know, I was 
lucky enough that a lot of people were sending me headshots of actors who looked like the characters. You know, we got a bunch of auditions and they were incredible. Um, Rebecca Hodge, who played Ellie and They Will Come, you know, she continued with us. She was one of the auditions for Ellie and I thought she was amazing. Um, and it was kind of that confidence I got in the cast that once I had that, I was like, okay, I think we're good. And then it came to location. So the other big, the hardest thing is matching the locations. A lot of video game movies, what they'll do, whether it's a budget concern, whether it's laziness, whether it's just not caring about the source material, they'll just like change the location. They just like don't care, you know? And I feel that for the original Ellie's Revenge, once again, that was set in Seattle, right? So I wanted to make sure it matched the environment. So we shot in Oregon, which had the same forest. And for They Will Come, you know, there's so many scenes in the games where they're in these, you know, spore infested houses with fungus on the walls and everything. So I was like, okay, you know, I could find an abandoned house and film in it and then like, you know, just try to maybe add some little CGI spores or just forget about the spores. But I was like, you know what? I feel that that's too easy. I feel like that's the easy way out. So I literally in my garage built an entire set that, that was supposed to be like a bedroom with a bathroom. And, you know, I put spores all over the walls. I, I made it try to feel as much like the game as I could. And I felt that that is, you know, part of what makes it genuine, you know? So it's like the locations, it's the cast. Then you have to go into the performances, make sure that the actors know the characters, they understand the characters, they understand the energy, you know, the darkness, everything like that. Um, and I think also the biggest thing, honestly, with video game movies um, is they'll find like a really like action packed, violent one and then they'll make it just like really shitty or like PG-13 or just like not match sort of the brutality of that experience. And obviously people will be like, oh, like don't, you know, glorify violence. But most of the video game movies they make, unless it's like, you know, some sort of Nintendo like, uh, you know, Pikachu movie or whatever um, is usually about some sort of action-packed, more mature game. But then they try to dumb it down and make it PG-13 or even PG and sell it to younger kids. And, like, nobody cares. I mean, I even remember, um, I don't know the rating, but I remember they made that movie, that Hitman movie that was also... There's been a couple. Yeah, yeah. There was one... Was it... It was, I think, like, 2007-ish is when they made it. The one with... um... Ah, shit. Buddy was in uh, uh, Mandalorian recently. Um, oh, no. I'm trying to remember. He he was in uh, the show Homeland. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fuck, he, I can't remember his name. But yeah, he he had the first was, hit, man. Yeah, it was just it was terrible, super campy, super cheesy. Just like it doesn't capture that. It's it, it almost makes it offensive. It's like these filmmakers who make these just think it's a joke. They think it's for kids. They don't think it has any type of emotional impact at all when video games have a ton and people who actually are engaged and love the stories, it means a lot to them. I mean, it fucking inspired me to be a filmmaker. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like it has, it, it jumpstarted a whole career that I've had, you know, tons of projects, like a whole life I have. And I, I think that's something that a lot of these big studios just overlook and they're just trying to make a quick money grab. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, well, that first that first Hitman too, like uh, I remember the huge backlash against it was that uh, the voice actor is also the char- the character model, so they could have just got the guy, 
Yeah. And instead they got uh, the same thing with the, the reboot Hitman. The reboot Hitman at least looked more like 47. But uh, yeah, complete like you had the guy. It's 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 it, it comes to a point where in that Hollywood system, it's a political thing of who is the hot actor, who will make them more money. But they're always like wrong. That's what's so crazy is like with video game movies, they never get it right. You'd think that they would learn. Now, obviously, we have HBO who's making the show. Um, they're taking their own artistic liberties. The they, Last of Us show. Last of Us show, yeah. And they, they clearly didn't, you know, cast people that look identical, um, which I've spoken about a lot. I think the show is going to be great for what it is. I don't think, I think what they did is smart, even though it's kind of weird. I don't think that they're marketing towards gamers. I think they're marketing towards everyone else who's never experienced that story. And now they're going right. to have to experience it, which... I understand because the story is amazing. And I remember when I played it, I'd be like, oh man, like only if people who aren't gamers could, to, could see the story, they would be blown away. But obviously if you're not a gamer, you're not gonna sit through that. So I feel that with this HBO one, I think it will be successful. I think that gamers are not gonna be super satisfied, but I think they're gonna be more satisfied than they usually are because I think the source material will at least be similar. I think that the only really difference is going to be the casting choices. Um, but once again, I think that's okay because they're really marketing towards a more mature audience. I mean, HBO itself, like you think about the type of people that watch HBO and it probably is not a bunch of high school kids who don't like care, you know, who just want to see a bunch of action. They've even spoken about that. They want to focus more on the drama, you know, things like that. It's for a mature audience. And I think that that's probably going to be one of the first successful video game adaptations, honestly, adaptations, tripping up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I once again think the hardest part is the casting, the locations, and then just sticking to that source material of like what the energy, the vibes, the darkness of the game is. Um, and they always drop the ball for some reason, um, whether it's so that they can make more money you know, or have a different audience. It just never works. Um, but well, the audience thing is one thing. Cause like you can look at obviously video games are the highest, uh, performing like monetarily, um, genre, I guess in the world right now, yeah. but it's not gaming as a whole. It's like, you know, five games, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, um, what is it? I almost said LOL League of legends, that kind of thing. You know, the competitions, um, I assume someone at a studio somewhere looked at the purchase sheet for last of us, saw that whatever, 8 million people bought it. I don't know how many it sold, probably more than that, but, <laughs> um, you know, and then just went like, well, that's not enough tickets. Yeah. There's yeah. way more people than eight, you know? So let's, <laughs> yeah. let's try to widen the field a little bit so I can understand like that mentality. I'm wondering what, what your, um, opinion is on, um, more uh, making an original script for a film adaptation because you could you could one to one copy the beat of uh, the 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 game in a film the beat sheet of you know the game and then go there it is and then everyone will go yep that's the story I remember and it doesn't and you know so how do you uh, make a film that is both satisfying to the gamers but then also um, gives something that's more original than just the game. Cause that's 
kind of yeah. uninspired. I mean, and I'm sure the people working on it would be like, oh, great. You yeah, know? I mean, the, the question, that's a perfect question. And it literally is exactly what I've done with these past three films. So look at the first one I made, Ellie's Revenge. That one, I wanted to create the gameplay experience into a live action film. I just had, I just wanted to really bad. I had this urge. Um, and then I also wanted to recreate these scenes because they were so nostalgic and euphoric and I wanted to like honor Naughty Dog with them. And that was something during that moment in time I felt was just needed, right? That that was not really me at my like full artistic potential or creative potential. That was me just being like, I have to make this. I have, I just have to. So I made that film and it blew up. I mean, that has over a million views now in five months. It's like the the fastest growing last of us fan film there's been. And it, it worked, what I did worked. Um, but the thing is after that film, I left that film and I was very unsatisfied. You know, I didn't care about the, the growth. I didn't give a shit. And I, you know, I wake up to comments every day and likes, and I'm just like, don't care because I'm like, it was really cool. Probably the thing I'm proudest about with that film is the cinematography. I loved how I shot it. But once again, it's just like recreations of the scenes. Like, I'm glad I gave the fans something that now like they've been waiting for. They're so happy, but it didn't like push it farther. It didn't push it forward. It didn't like bring new emotions to them. So then I, you know, the months went by and I once again had this kind of like just urge. I was like, you know what? I really want to make a sequel. I've been thinking about it, but I really want to focus on performance and story this time. I don't, I don't want to focus on spectacle and, just kind of that euphoria that people felt, right? I was like, I want to focus on something that's purely just the performances, the story, and that's why it engages you. The idea that it's The Last of Us is more of an afterthought, right? I'm like, I want this to be something completely different. And I want the original route, you know? I, I, I just wrote a completely original script. You know, in my mind, it takes place after part two, you know? And it's in a way, it's kind of a little part three for people. Um, and, you know, the film was not, the film was not fully revolved around Ellie, as anyone can see. And it's funny because since I released it, I mean, it, it hasn't performed even close to as good as the first one, which is fine because I knew it wouldn't. A lot of people, especially the people who follow me or are fans of the first one, were so confused because they were like, we expected a recreation of more of the scenes, more of the game. That's what we wanted. And a lot of people, though, commented, they were like, we expected something different, but we really like what you did. Like, this is really cool. Um, and I'm happy that some people felt that way because I wanted getting I wanted to get people's brain working. I wanted people to be like, "Wow, you can actually like push forward the story." And hopefully, honestly, maybe what I did is also make people a little more open to the HBO's adaption because HBO is going to have a ton of new stuff that's never been seen. And I think that's cool. I think you need to because if you keep repeating the same stuff that's already been done, there's just no point. There's just no point. And I think that I would be doing myself a disservice. I would be doing. And then remember this band. <laughs> yeah. Like I would be doing everyone a disservice and it would almost be like dishonorable to a naughty dog. If I just kept recreating the stuff, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, I don't think it's worth it. And as a creator who makes 99% of my stuff is original, you know, I, I've only made counting my high school last of us film three last of us fan films. I've made tons of other short films. I do a lot of original stuff. I love to create original content. I'm not someone who just likes to copy other work and then try to ride like a, a fame wave off. Of it. I don't want that. 
Um, I do something based on how I feel and the urge I feel creatively. And um, I, I left after making They Will Come, I left incredibly satisfied. I don't have a million views. I don't have, you know, it's been, it's been up like a week. I don't have like 300,000 views like the other one, but I don't care because I made the film and the story I wanted to. And I feel that the performances were strong. The characters were brilliant. Um, I just felt that it, even if it's 3,000 people watching it, now those 3,000 people are seeing something they've never seen before. It's giving them an emotion that they've never felt, right? Even if it's close to what they felt, it's different because it's new characters, it's a new story. I'm putting them through different situations. I even have Ellie doing different things than what she did in the game. And, you know, I still made sure to keep Ellie, you know, the character she is, she has the brutality, you know, and then at the end, we see that she still has that little bit of morality in a dark way. You know, when she kills the clicker and puts it out of its misery, it's like her way of showing she still has a moral kind of sympathy and empathy, um, which I think is very close to what the game, you know, shows. Like, that's what you have to do. It's, there's no sugarcoating with anything, you know? It's to the point that, like, a mercy killing is, like, the kindest thing you can do for someone. Um, and... I, I just completely love doing an original original film that was in the world of a video game. And I definitely want to do more of those. Like that's something I would want to continue more. I don't really have a want or need to recreate anything from the games anymore. Like I, I feel that I already did that and I'm good now. Like I don't want to. Yeah. Um, you know, it'd be, I mean, if like, if I ended up getting in talks with the production company that signed a deal with Naughty Dog or even HBO and, they wanted to bring me aboard to shoot or, or direct something that was a recreation. Fuck yeah, I'd do it. But for me personally, like just independently, creating the original stuff is, I think, more satisfying for everybody. Even if sure. they don't know it, I think it is. Do you think there were, uh, just think, thinking about the, the, like, the quagmire that trying to get anything to pop on online is, can you identify any external factors to why people may have uh, jumped on the first film so quickly and not the second one? Because obviously when you click a link, you're not going to know if it's original or a, or a derivative, you know, not derivative in a negative, negative sense, but they're not going to know. They're just going to see last of us and click it. Um, Yeah. It was definitely shared everywhere. So when we first made Ellie's revenge, we had lots of trailers coming out. We clearly had characters that looked just like the game. And, you know, we had an Instagram that was kind of growing, I mean, like 1,000, 2,000 followers, but still it was growing for us. And all of those people were, were spreading it everywhere. Twitter, you know, I even before we released it, we had, um, there were just like gaming journalist websites and stuff that were posting about us. We had GameSpot post about us, like all these places. It was something like it, a fan film hadn't been made in a while for The Last of Us and something that actually was like the characters, looked like them. So I, I entirely believe that that film exploded because we did essentially a huge cosplay. It was a big cosplay right. that was done in a professional way. It looked really good. It didn't look campy or weird. Um, but that's how I always compare the two. It's like Ellie's Revenge was a huge cosplay and it kind of was like destined to to, to blow up. I knew it would. Nope. All my friends that I told I was doing it and I was investing money, I spent like $10,000 on that film. Nope. Everyone was like, you're wasting your money. There's no way. And I'm like, dude, I'm a gamer. I promise you it will blow up because 
when I did the high school film, which was terrible, terrible. I had like this actor and he was like, you know, he didn't have the same body type as Joel and he had a wig on and like, I had my girlfriend at the time playing Ellie in like a Coca-Cola red shirt. It was just, it was terrible, but it blew up. It had, it got like 300,000 views in a couple months. And I was a high schooler with a YouTube channel of like five subs. So I, I had a feeling after getting that cast together, I was like, Cosplays is a huge community. Last of Us, huge community. This is going to blow up for sure. People are going to spread it. And they did. I was, I didn't think it'd get that many views, but after it did, I was just kind of like, that makes sense. And, you know, when it comes to this, I knew that nobody would want to share it. It, it. it pretty much like just after people realized, like a few people, after a few people realized that it wasn't a cosplay, they stopped sharing it. And it just like, stop the circulation um now i did last for ellie's revenge i did an interview with gameology and they posted and that was a huge boost and they did another one with me for this one so you know hopefully it, it's able to boost it some more um i don't really care as much about the views but i would just love other people to see it like i'd love people from the community to see it see an original film that i feel was executed well um but yeah, I, I think it's all based on just the source material. And it, it, it proves even more though that like video game movies, like people are really obsessed with just that recreation. They want that. Um, I Because there hasn't been a good re, like video game movie that's really been made yet, I think that it makes people even more hungry for just having that recreation. I don't think people are ready for an original film. Like I don't think they want that. Counterpoint, free guy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you got basically Grand Theft Auto, but they just kind of took the framework of it and then made a whole story yeah. around it. I enjoyed Free Guy. No, Free Guy was that was a fun movie. That was really good. Um, and I think I think people enjoyed that though because it didn't have a title of a different game. Sure. You know, yeah, if yeah, they yeah. called Free Guy like, you know, Red Dead Redemption, you know, <laughs> nobody would care, you know, or Cyberpunk, you know, it, it, right. it would it would be a big flop, but they they were smart with what they did. You know, um, cyberpunk probably should have been a movie. Let's be honest. That would be instead of a game like <laughs> be a great movie. I mean, Blade Runner 2040. Like, that's one of my favorite films that came out in the past three years. I love that film. And they could easily do something like that for cyberpunk, you know. But once again, because it's a video game, they just don't take it seriously. They they wouldn't connect like a real like amazing director and team with it. I don't think they would. They would find people who were just like, ah. There's sellouts, whatever. Just make something to get us some some money. Like it's it's unfortunate, um, but I think because that keeps happening, people just want a cosplay. They want like a professionally amazing cosplay. That's what they want. And if if that was to happen for every game, then I think they could start to make original, and people would really enjoy it. And um, but that, yeah, I just don't think people are ready for original, but. That's not going to stop me from wanting to create it because I, I just love to create original content. Well, and to be fair, like, well, there's two two things. Like, one, you make something that's a, a quote unquote copy. You get a bunch of attention and now you have an audience that you can put original content in front of and people will fall off. But like the ones who they weren't going to stick around anyway. Right. Yeah, they wanted yeah. that one thing. So that's always something that I've thought like um, in my own work is kind of like there's going to be times where you kind of have to bend the knee a little bit. If you know that what you're doing reaches a goal, 
So for instance, you said you dropped 10 grand on this thing. I, I assume you did not make that money back oh, as no. money. Zero. But how did that, yeah, how did that, uh, how did that investment go for you? Do you feel like, do you think you made the money back in a different way? What did you pay for? I think that honestly, a, a lot of it had to just do with like the satisfaction of creating it. Like I'm that crazy that I would spend that much for that satisfaction of just, of, of making something that I've always wanted to see in live action. Um, I definitely, there's a part of it that having people so happy and having a blow up was definitely worth it for me having the it was for the community you know like that the first film was totally all about the community and um you know it's i think it obviously like will probably get me other work in the future as a cinematographer as whatever someone sees it um i definitely made this film as something more personal to me this was much more of an investment for my career going forward you know i I felt that as a director, I spent a lot more time working on the writing, on the, the the acting, everything like that. So I feel that this, that they will come is definitely something that was a perfect investment for me in that way. Um, you know, I, I think they were both great investments, you know, for the future. And I also saw them as investments and maybe it will get the attention of Naughty Dog. I would love to be a part of something they do. You know, I I hate the idea that anyone would think that like, it's me against them that it's like some sort of competition that like this is to spite them it isn't like are you kidding me like that people send in resumes to get on these films you know when they've done other films but like i literally made two fan films that are quality like i have the passion there i think it's clear and that is kind of another investment i made i feel that everyone a part of the projects because i worked with these people who love the games all they want to do is keep being a part of this stuff you know this isn't us being like this is ours we're better you know, look at the comments saying that HBO sucks. Haha, ha. it's, it's not that at all. Um, you know, I honestly, any comments I've been seeing that say really shitty things about HBO, I, I try to, if they're really negative, I get rid of them like instant. You know, I, I try to keep like an open conversation because I don't want people to think that. This is more of something being like, look, you can call us nobodies. We're indie filmmakers, we're fan filmmakers, whatever you want to call it, we're small. Look what we can achieve with no budget, with just passion, with passion skill. This is like our audition to be a part of either HBO or if, you know, some other indie production company gets rights to do it, which I'm sure will happen. I'm sure everyone's going to start getting, making some sort of films for, for Naughty Dog eventually professionally. And I just hope this is something in, in my portfolio and the rest of the people involved that it shows I think we'd be a great, you know, addition to the team, whether it's in the writing room, it's in post-production, it's in something like we understand the story, we love the characters, and we nail the aesthetic. We completely get it, you know, and um, I think that's that's one of the biggest investments, too. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to get any money back, and obviously for a fan film, I don't think you even can. You're not supposed to, and I wasn't going to, you know, mess with that. Um, it was just purely for my portfolio, and and the community and once again both were a big love letter to naughty dog have you heard from naughty dog at all like anyone like tweet at you or anything like that never any tweets um never any tweets which did start to get me worried because i i did i do feel like especially the first one it, it went so viral like somebody up there had to have seen it because i've seen neil Druckmann tweet small films that have a hundred thousand views like someone has to um 
part of me gets a little worried that they saw that and like are upset with me about it or think that I was trying to be spiteful or something. I don't know. I really can't describe it. Um, and I don't want to put words or thoughts in, into their head of what, why they haven't. But I, I have a LinkedIn and I've been able to successfully connect with a lot of people from Naughty Dog, like the lighting artists and stuff like that. I've tried to, you know, send them very kind messages being like, I hope this makes your day better. I, I made this film. Um, I did get a response from maybe two people for Ellie's Revenge, but this current film I haven't. But the current film's only been out like a week, so I, I don't expect anything yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if there was a way I could get into any contact with people who do production at Naughty Dog or film production or anything, I mean, I would I would love to be a part of it. I would love to be sure. a part of it. You know, this is not me saying I want to be separated. I would love to be a part of their team. Um, and I think that's, once again, that's part of the big investment of it. I mean, it's already a fragile thing. Like I'm putting my name out there. I'm connecting my name to this. So it could either go the way of let's blacklist that fucker for copying us and making <laughs> this shit. Or it could go the route of, wow, you know, this guy really appreciates what we did. He did a really good job, an honorable job. Let's, let's bring him aboard. So you know, by putting my name out now on two within a year, um, I put myself in a pretty scary position. It could go either way. Um, and it, it would be heartbreaking for me if, if they went the, the way of being like, fuck this guy, let's blacklist them. Yeah. But it could happen. You know, I don't know. So uh, going into the first film, were there were there any skills that you had to kind of like, I suppose, level up to make that first film? And what were the lessons you learned in that regard and then going into the second, like, what did you learn from that experience? You know, I think the biggest skills for the first one, time management, um, making sure that my, that I had the right equipment rigged out for the right scene. So I did something for that, that I had never really done before. Um, so I, you know, up until about the past year, I've always just had one camera. I shoot on black magic cameras. I call myself indie black magic. Um, but I shoot on black magic cameras. I was using the pocket 6k. I love that camera. And I, about a year and a half ago, I was able to get an Ursa mini pro 4.6k. Um, and I got a nice cinema lens on there, a Tokina zoom. Um, and for, for Ellie's revenge, I was like, you know what? We're only going to get two days to shoot in Oregon, a bunch of scenes, and we're only going to get two days in Atlanta. So I was like, for this shoot, I'm going to have a two camera setup but it's going to be one camera with a wide lens, which was my 6K on a gimbal. So I had a 16 to 35 Canon so I could, you know, zoom in if I wanted to, but I stayed pretty wide. And then the Tokina, the, the Ursa, I had that zoom lens, which is a 50 to 135. So I was like any close-ups that I want to get that feel, I want to get that wide aperture feel and, and that out of focus bokeh, I'll just switch to that rig. And I had an easy rig on and I was using a Crane 3S. So I'd hook on the gimbal. And I'd be able to, you know, we were going through this forest, like it had hills. I had, um, for the first one, Isaac Gonzalez, he produced and wrote this, they will come with me. But on Ellie's Revenge, I had just met him. So he was kind of like a PA production assistant on set. Um, he was a little upgrade. Yeah, he's amazing. he's amazing. I'm so happy I met him. But he was literally like behind me holding my back as I just like trudged through the forest, you know, with this gimbal and we were so lucky that the footage is so like, you know, it's so steady and looks like it's floating because we were going over hills. I'm just like tripping and he's holding me up. 
Um, so, and that was something, the only way we achieved it is because of the gear that I was kind of strategizing to use. And then, you know, there's scenes like in the first one, there's this whole scene with the bow and they're she's shooting all these dudes. I have the, the zoom lens on that. I'm getting more close-ups. It's a different type. So pretty much having that two camera setup made everything run so smooth because I was shooting it. There was no one there to shoot it. You know, I didn't have money to hire a crew, hire a DP, anything like that. And I just knew, I knew what I wanted to get. I knew I had some skills to get it. So I was like, I might as well. Um, but I just surrounded myself by a cast who was, they were indie filmmakers too. You know, they were, they did as much as they could to help in any way. And obviously, you know, Isaac was on board. He was my right hand man. He helped so much, but having the right, like, literally loadout the same way in a video game before you go into a multiplayer match, you got to get the right loadout. You have to do that with filmmaking, especially running gun, because if you don't, you, you fuck up and you, you find parts where you're like, damn it. I could have, I could have gotten that shot, but I didn't have the right setup. And you know, it takes time to set up. You, you got to set up the equipment. And I used to not think like that. I used to just grab my stuff and be like, all right, let's head out and shoot and just kind of deal with it there. But we had zero, we had no time. All the scenes in the first one that had like Dina and Jesse and all these other characters, we shot in one day. The second day, one day, all those scenes. And then the second day was just Ellie. And that's when we did like the scene in the woods with the scars and just stabbing them in the neck and stuff. Um, and a lot of that was Gimbal. You know, for that film, I wanted to stay on a Gimbal. I wanted it to feel like the floaty camera that you see in a game, right? I wanted it to feel like that. I wanted to recreate that gameplay because I was, I loved it so much. Um, then you fast forward to They Will Come and after testing that on Ellie's Revenge, I've used it more on my other stuff over the months. And for this film, I, I carried the same thing. I, I had the same idea. I had two different camera setups. Um, this time I was using a 6K Pro um, and I actually captured about 90% of the audio from that. I, I had a uh, Sennheiser mic connected, little mini XLR, and I think it sounded fantastic. Um, and I actually didn't do really any gimbal on They Will Come. I had a, uh, just kind of like a rigged out black magic with a handle and stuff, and I would have my easy rig and, and have it just holding. So I got more of a kind of like floaty feel more not really a like you know just like you know, moving like that it was more just kind of like a a natural floaty feel more similar to what you would get with like a traditional steady cam right um and yeah i mean that was that was the main thing that i had to really get down and i think that if, if someone's gonna pull off a film like this where there's literally like no crew um what they will come i, I had isaac as a producer and, and he once again was just my right hand man we were the crew and then we had actors and we had all these spots, all these locations, you know, um, Isaac lives in LA. I live in Chicago. So I had to build the sets on my own, um, the weeks building up. And, you know, it's just like, you have to want it. You have to know exactly what you want and you just have to keep pushing. And then you have to prep like crazy. And I don't even mean prep by like, I, I don't really prep shot lists a lot. Like shot for me when I shoot these things, like, I'll have an idea of the shots I want. I have written down, but usually I get on set and it just kind of changes because I start feeling different ways the actors are performing or I see different angles and it all kind of comes together there. So what I really prep is my gear. I prep my gear. I make sure I have the right stuff for the right time. And then the shots flow out. 
you know, there's no need to be like, you know, I need this and this and this because I already, I already know and I have the right gear to get it. So if that answers your question. Sure. Um, what were some things that like, you know, so for a, a major film or, or whatever you want to call that, you know, there's a metric dick ton of, of pre-production, you know, it's not even just prepping the gear. It's go, doing uh, rehearsals and, you know, building the sets and all that kind of thing, getting everyone hired, you know, um, QCing everything kind of from, you know, fix the old fix it and pre situation. Since you were just kind of like running and gunning, were there things that you could have fixed in pre-production that you um, kind of weren't able to get to on the fly or was, did that, does that seem to work out for you pretty well? Um, honestly, it, it all kind of worked out really well. Like we didn't, we didn't have any reshoot days. We didn't have anything that was so messed up that we had to reshoot it. Um, if anything, obviously, like I feel that I could have done more with production design. I could have done just more if I had, you know, more materials, if I had more people helping, if I had other people with different eyes that could see things I couldn't. Um, you know, I am completely a team player. I love working with a team. I just like, I'm never really in a situation where I have that around me. So I kind sure. of just, I just kind of have to, to do it on my own. And I'm always lucky when I'm able to find good team members because I really feel like they're hard to find. You know, I've worked with so many teams, so many people. And a lot of times it's just ended in like bullshit. Like it's just problems. Um, and it, not even for me, it could be two cast members or crew members who are fucking with each other and it screws shit up. Like, it's just like the worst. So I'm, I'm very picky about a team and I've kind of made myself like a bunch of different team members within myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, if I had more production design people, if I had more people with prepping stuff like that, I think the quality obviously could have raised. I think there could have been more. I think if we had someone who was specifically on locations, they could have probably found more stuff and we could have gotten more scenes of, of, of walking through locations, but you know, like for the house and they will come, it was my parents' house. So I, you know, I don't live with them. So I had to go back and be like, Hey, could I use your, the house? Cause I grew up there and you know, it's a, it's a nice tall wooden Victorian farmhouse style. They keep it very, um, you know, just like nice and, and old. Um, so basically <laughs> I was like, they're not going to let me put fungus all over the walls. So the garage in the back, they pretty much use as storage. I'll clean that out. And then I'll build up these foam walls and do whatever I want to them. But then I was like, shit, I need a stairway. I need to have like rooms that she's like going into. So we used like the, the main stairway in sort of the like foyer area. Um, I convinced them that and they let me kind of, you know, mess that up along with like right at the top of the stairs, but that's all, you know, and there are things I wish it could, I, I always wish it could look more old, have more paint sure. falling off the walls of the ship, but I could only do so much um, to their house. Um, but you know, it's things like if we had a designated location person who was amazing at that, was able to get us stuff, you know, maybe we could have found a huge abandoned place that we were able to put shit on the walls and do all these things. So there would be wider shots and more kind of set pieces. So yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of things that could have always went better in that way. I think though with, with the, the resources we had and the things that we were able to attain, I think we definitely did the best with what we had. I think that's like the main thing. For sure. Well, and also like, I really want to make sure that like I'm giving you the credit you deserve because the number one thing that stops people 
in my experience from success, honestly, is they're always waiting for, well, if once I, you know, um, um, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, describes it as resistance. Resistance is this pernicious uh, sort of force that makes you believe that um, there's a more perfect time to make your thing. You know, if, if only I had this gear or if only I took this class or once I've done this retreat, then I will be able to make my thing. And clearly, uh, you know, you're one of the people that goes like that. Ah, oh, I need to make it. So I'm going to make it with what I got, you know, yeah. or, you know, and obviously I think all of us try to make it as good as you can up until the point in which you're making it. But most people don't make the thing. There's Absolutely. too much, there's too much resistance in the way that oh, I got to wait until I've gone to this school or whatever, you know? And, and, and what's really fucked up is, is the film school I went to, I, I feel that that was something that was taught. There was always that idea taught and every, a lot of the people I went to school with had that same mentality. They, they would never just go and try to make something um, quality with little resources. They would never, and if they had little resources, they would just act like it was trash and, and it would be terrible because they wouldn't put effort. Like they, they didn't understand that you can have little resources and still put all of your effort and make something great. And I felt that my school was really on that thing of like, wait till you have this and you got to get this to do this and you got to have this and then it will be like this. You know, it was, That's it was, interesting. yeah. And, and I, it was so weird to me because I was the opposite, you know? If I felt like I wanted to make a film and go back home and do it, I didn't have a lot of shit to do it. I would just go do it and I would try my best. And by doing that again and again and again, it got better and better. And I feel like that's how I got to the point that I was able to make something that looked like they will come and looks like Ellie's Revenge is because I got so used to it. And, um, you know, I it's like frugal filmmaking, basically. You know, it's just like using anything you can get and not treating it like it's shit, like treating it like it's high quality and making it as good as you can. And um, yeah, I mean, the excuses are so easy to come by. You know, I could easily come by excuses, but I just, I got to a point that I knocked myself in the ass and stopped thinking that way because I definitely did. I definitely went through moments where I would not do something because I felt like, oh, but I might need this to do it and I probably need to get this set and all this shit. I actually did sort of go through that for this film, they will come um, when I was trying to find a house to use. Because as I said to you, I wish I had a full abandoned house that I could just have shit everywhere. I clearly didn't. And I pushed through that mentality and I said, you know what? No, I'm going to shoot in the garage. I'm going to build something. I'll use what I can in here and I'm going to make it great. I'm going to add some VFX. I'm going to do some cool production design. I went and got a bunch of fucking leaves and everything, put them everywhere. Like, I was like, I'm just going to work with what I got and I think it will be great. And um, I think we sold the illusion of the story we were trying to tell for the, for the sets. And um, so far we've gotten good responses from the sets that were, were created. So, you know, I was like, it was a success for me in that way. I was like, that's great. It worked. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the people um, generally online, a bunch, you know, a handful of the DPs that I've spoken to on this podcast have all been like, kind of echo that same sentiment of like, if you want to tell a story, go tell a story. You have an iPhone, you know, uh, there's an old interview with David Fincher where, where students apparently would come up to him and be like, I can't make my movie yet. And he's like, don't you own an iPad? Like, do your parents have an iPad? You can, sh you can storyboard on it. You can write the script, you can shoot it, you can edit it all on the iPad. Um, and I think that's, that's something I've noticed is there's like definitely a group of people who, 
think that the production value is what's going to make them make people take them seriously and not the story they're trying to tell at the end of the day film is a storytelling medium even though you know i'm a cinematographer exclusively for the most part um and of course i love pretty pictures but i don't like just run around filming pretty pictures for the sake of it you know because that's not a story (laughs) yeah exactly so i take pictures yeah (laughs) i I feel you yeah it's um you know if, if we lose storytelling then there's nothing there and i think that even like even like the dumbest of audiences, I don't want to call them dumb, but even even the people who don't can't sit through a film that has you know is deep, you know, who can only sit through like a Fast and Furious movie or even like an Avengers movie, even they hate movies that don't have some sort of storytelling. You know, even people who like really only go to movies for action, they need to have something there. And once you lose all of that, like people, it, it will flop. It will be and I think that's what video game movies do the worst out of all of them is it's just like shit. It's just like action sequences that are really tacky and then like horrible dialogue and like a story that doesn't even make sense because they're trying to only make it for gamers who get the inside idea of what it is. And you know what I mean? So it's like, and that just doesn't work. I think um, storytelling is so important. It's literally what they teach you in English class in, in grade school. Have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's, there's so many movies that are made now, unfortunately, that have a beginning and a middle and the, it just ends abruptly. And I hate that. Um, I honestly, so I don't know if you saw the new Michael Myers movie, Halloween kills, but no, that just came out. Yeah. I, I, so I saw the first one, the, the like recreation that David Gordon Green did, which he, he actually went to UNCSA. As a director. Which one was that? I saw one of the, whichever one ends with Michael in a basement, like locked up in a basement. They catch it on fire. That one, that one. So I saw that (laughs) one. Sorry to give that away to anyone who didn't see it. Oh, no, you're good. (laughs) I I saw that one and I was like, you know what? It was was pretty cool. I'm I'm not a big fan of movies where innocent people are just getting like brutalized and murdered. I don't really like to watch that shit. Sure. Um, I'm all cool with violent movies, but if it has a purpose, I like it. If not, I'm kind of like, the fuck is this? But um, I thought that movie was pretty good, and I felt that it did sort of have a beginning, middle, and conclusion. And it was, for the most part, satisfying. But then this film, now I know that they have two parts, and I guess it, the way they marketed it, they really lied to everyone, and they made it seem like this I movie. did not know it had a second part. Yeah, exa- exactly. Nobody did. So this literally was just like, beginning and like not even a middle it was like beginning and like almost to the middle and then it ends and it was second matrix problem yeah it's just like so unsatisfying and shitty and it's like not storytelling because all they did was show a bunch of people it's like gore porn but it's like it's not even like saw where it's like creative it's just like terrible for some reason the filmmakers have like a they get like turned on by seeing people die in front of their loved ones that was something okay. that I almost thought was like offensive in the film. I was like, bro, look, I love like the last of us is one of the most brutal fucking like stories ever. Right. And and I love it. The gameplay is so brutal. But, you know, when you start making films, it's just like showing people getting murdered in front of their loved ones and they're they're defenseless and they're stupid and no one. Everyone always walks into the room by themselves like it doesn't make any sense. I'm just like, dude. And then it ends. And there's no, there's no middle or conclusion. And I, I, I left the theater 
very upset because I was like, wow, that was just, I, I rarely go to the theater now and I rarely go to see movies. So when I do and it's like that, I'm like, what the fuck was that? I'm like, that's, that's worse than even like a movie like Marvel's, I'll, I'll watch Marvel movies and I, I like them for the most part because even though it's all kind of a string of like they're going to make sequels, they still kind of have a little bit of a conclusive thing at the end. At least you see something satisfying happen that like concludes that mini story, right? But when films don't do that, I think it just defeats the purpose. It's like, what the fuck is the point? Like you have to tell a story. If you're going to tell a story, there's a reason. there's a reason they taught you in English class to have a beginning, middle, and end. Because if you don't, it's just like you, you leave so unsatisfied, unsatisfied and it's like it sucks. Something that we're kind of like touching on a lot is, is makes me think of a film professor of mine said basically to make a successful film. Everyone thinks that everyone wants like some crazy twist or um, to break the mold. And it's just not true. Like you're saying about um, uh, audiences that aren't maybe film literate. Their yeah. brain doesn't know, but their heart does. And so this film professor, basic, I, the reason I'm being cagey is because I don't remember who it was, but they said um, the best, the easiest way to make a movie that it succeeds is just take a genre film and put a new skin on it. Like you like it, you take noir and then you add sci-fi and then that equals your film and, you know, whatever, Blade Runner, it would be that case. Um you know it and then you, like you're saying you peep you you can give the audience some twists and turns but Chekhov's gun's got to get fired you know we want to you don't need to feel good but we want to feel sat- satisfied with going on the journey people want to see um their lives explained on screen and that yes. formula doesn't really change those kind of like three or four elements don't tend to in successful films don't tend to change very much um, I do think that people can get a little ahead of themselves. It's like stick to stick to the classics until you know what the hell you're doing. Then then <laughs> then work yeah. on trying to be super avant garde about it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree completely. Um, was there uh, any? You said you don't go to movies. Is that just because you watch them at home, or are you just not watching films that much anymore? I, I'm just so busy now. I uh, I have two kids. So, oh wow okay yeah, i have kids and uh when i'm not working i'm with them so i i just like i i mean i i honestly usually watch shows more than i do movies um sure. streamers but, are making some great shows right now yeah i mean i mean tv shows are like insane and, and that's another thing like the same way video games became super cinematic and now have so many amazing stories I really feel that TV the past 10, 15 years has done the same thing and it has only gotten better and only bigger, you know, and I think that's incredible. So usually I tend to watch shows and series more than I do films. Um, and that's the thing. Usually when I go see a film in the theater, it's a big deal for me. I'm like, I'm taking my time, you know, I'm going to go see this film in the theater. It's so, so supposed to be super big and epic. That's the reason I'm going. So if it sucks, I'm like, what the fuck was this? Because um, I, I do, I don't think theaters will ever die off completely, but I, I think it's been clear that, especially after COVID hit, that like, I think movie theaters definitely are not as popping as they used to be. And I don't think that they will continue to, to get more, to get better. I think it's only going to go down little and little because 
now you have Amazon and Apple and everyone. Now they're all making movies and they put it on their streaming service. People want to watch a movie at home. And I don't think there's any problem with that. I don't think that that cinema necessarily you have to go sit in a theater and watch it. You know, I think that it's a cool way to to really take in the visuals, take in the audio. I think audio is a big thing about that. I hate listening to a film over my TV speakers. You can't hear fucking anything. It's like a disrespect to the sound designers. Um, but I, I, I think the theaters are kind of going down and I think TV and, and, and movies on streaming services are going to keep going up. You know, you know, what's funny is you say that, uh, you mentioned that you, something that I've heard a lot of people say who say they don't have a lot of time all say they watch television shows. And I'm like nine, one hour shows (laughs) is more time than an hour and a half movie. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's weird. It's weird. I don't know. It's like, I'm trying to figure out the psychology behind that. Cause like, I don't, I don't get it. Like my girlfriend's the same way. She's like, she'd rather watch a show than a movie. Whereas I'm the opposite. I think it's like for the show, I I don't always finish an episode. You know, I might jump in, watch like 45 minutes and then I jump out and go somewhere else or do something. Then I come back and I keep watching and I, I never feel like I am super out of the loop. I feel like a movie. So like for me, a movie, which is why I love making movies. I want to make movies. I don't really have an interest in TV. I like movies. It's like one big experience pushed towards you. But for me, if I ever like pause a movie and like wait to finish it another day or have to pause it and leave for a while and I come back, all of that sort of like impact for me goes away. Like it just, it goes away. And I'm just kind of like, I'll finish it. I'll be like, that's, that's great. But it has nowhere near the same uh, impact as it would if I watched the whole thing through. I think that's why movie theaters probably are so important to people is because it forces you to do that. But for me, like TV already is so like separated by like episodes and all that, that I kind of, it's almost like, it's like TV shows are like gossip. It's like, it's just like gossip. It's just like drama shit. Right. So it's like you, you experience some of it, you walk away and you think about it and then you're engaged in it and then you continue it. You just keep watching it for a movie. It's something totally different. If I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I in so my thought process was because I'm still trying to figure I don't have like a, a thesis on this yet. But I've but I've wondered, is it the fact that a film demands both your attention, as you're saying, but commitment mm. and people like I think in an uh, this is like old man screaming at clouds now, but like in a, in a world where like your phone is constantly wants your attention, your Apple Watts wants your attention, your email bing dong wants your attention. You know, someone knocked at the door. Well, not anymore. We used to get excited. People would knock on your door and be like, oh, yes. Now someone knocks on your door and you're like, fucking hide. Turn like, off the lights. This, yeah. um, but, you know, everything wants your attention. And so it can feel day to day as if you don't have time or more specifically, you don't have the resources to commit to something. Whereas a film you know, when you're in a theater, you can't take out your, I mean, you shouldn't take out your phone, um, you know, and you're stuck right there and, and the experience is better when you're saying cinema doesn't have to live in a, in a theater, you know, obviously your, your Scorsese's of the world, your, um, you know, uh, Spielberg's would disagree. Cinema is the theater, you know, that's the church. A lot of people, uh, grow, I feel like I'm preaching now, now that I've said that, but like, that was, that was the way that I came up with it. You know, it was like, yeah, you went yeah. there and that was like the experience. And so I've, yeah, same thing. I got the 4k TV with like the nice sound and everything and you know, the criterion Blu-rays or whatever. So it's like the best quality, but I still prefer, you know, I got that AMC a list so I can like go, go to that experience. You know, there's nothing 
a, a 50 foot head feels different. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. I, uh, maybe one of the reasons I didn't like, uh, the, the Halloween kills movie as much too, is that it was all sold out. So I had to sit in the first row looking, uh, which well, I have do that. Um, <laughs> and that sucked, but I mean, my, my eyes adjusted to it, but definitely did not like that. I didn't, when you watch a movie, you got to be back. You got to see the full screen. You got to see it right there. I, yeah, I sit in the, you know, dead center as much as I can. The, yeah. uh, I don't know why they sell those front two rows that are in front of that rail. Like it's the worst experience. It's not nice. It's like, <laughs> I remember, uh, I remember what film was it? Oh, shit. I think it was like old school or something. I just remember it was like a Will Ferrell movie. And I just remember being in the front row or no, no, you know what it was? It wasn't me. It was my friend Chris Slack. And he walked to the front row and sat there because this is before um, reserve seating. So you know, there was just nothing left. So me and like a friend sat kind of in the good spot. And then he was out in the front with like another friend of ours. And there was a scene where like Will Ferrell basically like teabags the camera oh my God. In, like 30 minutes into the movie. And yeah. I just watched I just watched Chris and James just stand up and walk out. Oh my God. <laughs> they they were over it. They were like, that's enough for me. I don't yeah. need any more. Um, anyway, theory aside, I, uh, we we're hitting on the hour here. So I, the way I like to wrap up every podcast is by asking the same two questions. Um, one is what is a film that you would recommend people see or one that like inspired you or one that you think is, is really good. And two, um, a piece of advice that you receive that is stuck with you from maybe a mentor or a professor or friend even. Okay. So in terms of films, honestly, um, I think, I think the new, so going past the last of us, that was the time in my life that jump started, you know, me wanting to get into storytelling, seeing the first game, but obviously like I've, I've, you know, as I've grown, I've, 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 I've grown more accustomed to having films inspire me more. And I honestly, we were talking about a lot, Blade Runner 2049 probably is, is my favorite film of the past few years. Um, and it's so sad that that film was like a flop, right? Didn't it like not do very well because people just like didn't really, I, I think like the, they, people didn't like even know what it was really. Like it was kind of like an inside thing. They were expecting people from the original Blade Runner to go to it, but then the newer generation was like, the fuck is Blade Runner? Um, I think for me, that film is just like beautiful. I think the storytelling, the visuals, everything is just like, cinema at its finest um that's a film that i think in theaters you have to watch um because i've watched it on tv and i don't like it as much in the cinema it's oh, so much better it's insane dude, 1917 was the same way people were like yeah i tried to watch it on you know i was like what's wrong with you you it, you have to what i paused it halfway through it's like no it's a one take you have to watch it as a one take but then also um uh sorry, it's the the black magic lady just emailed me um, she went, how'd it go? It's like, it's, it's <laughs> Every time. Uh, but yeah, 1917. And um, I think Dune, my sister saw a, a press screener of Dune with her friend, which I mean, no, she didn't. I mean, let me retake that. Uh, my sister saw a press screener of Dune. And um, I was just like, that's going to be terrible. Like Dune is ma- shot in IMAX. Like you're going to not all of it, but you're going to want that. It's made for that, you know? Um. But yeah, 2049, I think just uh, didn't do well because it was a little long. You know, people see a two, you know, a two hour, 45 minute film and they kind of go. Yeah. 
And yeah, I, I think people weren't. I think the idea that Roger Deakins was going to shoot a sci-fi film was very exciting for the internet, but doesn't, no one gives a shit. Like yeah. the general public yeah. doesn't know who he is, you know? And, and that's the thing for me, that's, I think that's my favorite cinematography he's ever done. Now, obviously, you know, 1970, insane, amazing. Like in terms of just like the evolution of cinematography, the fact that that could get pulled off is incredible. But just like every frame for me in Blade Runner 2049, like I was in that world completely. Um, and I, I just felt that it was a complete work of art. And for me and my style and everything, like it's one of those films where everything ever see a movie and you want things to happen and then they happen so it just makes you happy as hell that's good and writing that, yeah and that's what kept happening and I, I was actually talking about that back to that halloween kills movie that movie the reason i fucking hated it is because every single thing i'm like don't walk out there don't do this why are you doing that that's a stupid idea they always did the stupidest shit and i'd be like please just do this and they wouldn't and films that do that i hate i hate it if, if a film is able to, and it's not even about being predictable, because it's just like, it's things that I'm like, I wish that this would happen next, and it happens. Or there's like an aesthetic, I'm like, oh my God, if, if they have this type of scene, or, or they feel this type of like energy, like, that would be so fucking cool. And 2049 did that for me. Like, I just thought it was incredible. Um, the scenes with um, Harrison Ford and Ryan Gosling, and just like the grit in their voice and the way they put like just so good um and the length like that was a type of movie that i wish it was fucking longer i would have sat there for five hours and watched it you know like it was just i was so engaged in the world um and i i would definitely recommend that to a lot of people and um i i think that when it comes to storytelling when it comes to performance when it comes to visuals sound design lighting just every aspect that film is like masterful. So, you know, that's something I would recommend for people to see just to really like experience something new. Cause I think it is something new. It, I had never seen anything like that. And I think when that came out, it was, it had just come out after the, the latest star Wars movie or something. So I had a lot of friends at film school who, cause I watched it in film school who had seen the star Wars movie and they loved it. I saw the star Wars movie after 2049 and I was like, was eh. that nine or eight? Nine, it's, right? Is nine. It was, it, was, yeah. it was the final one. And I was just Ooh, like, boy. yeah, I was just like, uh, you know, like, I, I just, I, when I, before 2049, I had never really seen a super modern, like, neo noir uh, sci fi film with the same, like, sort of like dark, darkness, action sequences, story, just all of that. Um, I had never really seen that been pulled off. And the only really thing that was like a modern type of film being made was like the, the Star Wars movies, which had insane CGI and were cool. But it was just, I've never been a huge like Star Wars fan. So like the mm. kind of the charm of it and like the not as how it's not, it's not super dark, obviously, you know. And I just am kind of like, eh, you know, it feels to me like a PG-13 type of story. And, you know, I'm not someone who's obsessed with ratings, but when a film feels like a rating, it kind of annoys me. I feel like film, whatever story. Oh, it like is, like if if it, it should be R, but they locked it to PG thirteen or yeah, whatever. I mean, I mean, even like like R they made it for the rating. Yeah, like like it's like this. If there's a story like the, the story of Blade Runner twenty forty nine, without me ever knowing the rating, the film should just 
have gone that direction that it is with the brutality and everything. Like there should be nothing that limits it. There should be it's no not a, and it's not a particularly brutal film. Like oh, it's no, it's got crazy. a couple little bloody parts maybe, and the rest of it's just like you know dark maybe. And, and that's the thing. It's like the darkness. And I, I you know, obviously a PG thirteen movie they can't go that dark. Because going that dark is just like you, you're gonna fucking scare these kids watching. You're gonna scare people. Like you can't do that. And it's just or, like, or you end up making Spawn. Yeah, you make a Spawn. But I just like that film. I just loved it. I never thought about the rating. Nothing. I just it was just it was perfect. It's exactly what I wanted. You know, everything I wanted to happen and it, it happened. Um, Another thing that I had. Uh, yeah, we'll let you go here in a second. Another thing that I had uh, heard. I, can't, I don't think this is perfect. I think I just read this, but uh, that that thought process of, um, oh, I want something to happen and then it happens. The way it was described to me is like you want to write a script in which um, you lay enough crumbs that the audience thinks they solved it themselves, even though that's where you were taking them. They think they came up with it before it happens and it makes you feel good because you feel like you're ahead of the story, even though you're doing a bit of a magic trick and yeah. still leading them along. Um, but yeah, finally, uh, a piece of advice that you've gotten, um, that has stuck with you or something you've read, maybe that, that had an impact on you. I'd say a piece of advice, definitely from, um, definitely from my directing faculty at my school. I was very close with my directing faculty. Um, Eric Easton, Tim McCann. Those are the two guys I was really close with. Um, you know, what was, what was inspiring to me about them was that they were, they, they were independent filmmakers while they were professors at school. So the things that we were doing, they were outside of school still doing the same thing. And, you know, they're in their 40s, I'm pretty sure. Um, and, you know, they're, they're older and they're still doing it. You know, it's not just, it, it's almost like this day and age people think that, like, only youth, only young people are going to be the ones who are out doing these indie films. Like if you're older, you have to be in the studio shit and just like do that. But it, it was inspiring to me. And I mean, pretty much the advice that they, that they gave, they gave me was just to like stay true to the type of films and stories that I want to make. Um, and you know, if I am capable of writing and I have a camera and I know how to edit just to go and do it. And I think that's something that is super simple and it's something that has been the most effective tool for me to push forward was that. And once you break through that and realize that you don't have to necessarily rely on other people and wait for other people to give you approval to do it or tell you, okay, now you have the right stuff. And a lot of times that other person is in here, you know, it's, it's, it's in here and it's saying, as we said, like, oh, now you have that or you have to wait to this. I think once you get past that and you realize that literally everything to make the film is in here and with these, then you're, you're good. And, um, he pointed to his head in his hands, those listening. (laughs) And, uh, I, I, I think another big thing too, actually, which not necessarily was advice, but an experience. One thing that, um, Eric Easton did is he, he really wanted us to feel what it was like to be actors. And sure. we had a couple classes where he would have a, actually a lot of the classes for a semester. He would have us like 
we would come we would come to class and have to like act like we would have to like prepare monologues and all this shit because he wanted us to feel how difficult it was to be an actor and that was something that was huge for me with with directing actors because before totally. that it's like why aren't they doing their job like come on you can do it and and you you know saying stupid shit be sad be happy don't you know but once you're <laughs> the best advice oh man that's film school <laughs> directing right there all right so you're sad <laughs> you know show me you're sad but once you feel what it's like to be an actor and have somebody directing you, because we would direct each other, you really start to pick up what actually works, how to speak with people. It's all about how you interact with people. You know, if you know, it's all about how you interact with people. You know, I, I, I think that if you're if you're a director that is just like a tyrant and just wants to tell everybody how to do it, even if you're able to make a a, a beautiful film, I I think that it's one percent of the potential it could have been. I think that yeah. you need to talk to people and, you know, work with them, you know, respect their creative ideas too. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, when it comes to actors now, I have the utmost respect for them. Um, actually what's funny is even before as an independent guy, even before I started like ever bringing on like crew to hire, I first started doing that with actors. Like before it even came to like hiring crew people, I would just get my friends to work with me for free. I would hire actors. Even if they were people first starting out, I would give them a chunk of change because I just respect that art so much. And um, if they're not on the screen, then it's just the city symphony. I'm just filming buildings and shit. You know, it's yeah. like, so I, um, yeah, I think respecting actors, walking in their shoes and then just using your resources and doing the best with them. I think that's the best advice for anybody. Um, Hey, and you know what? That's why I use black magic cameras because they're affordable and they're fucking amazing. Um, <laughs> love the color science. Um, and yeah. Right on, man. I would love, have you read the war of art? I haven't. I would give it's a, it's very thin read. I would, I would, uh, encourage you to read it. Cause it's, uh, a book from built, uh, written by a writer, the guy who wrote legend of bagger Vance. And, right. um, uh, short read, but it talks that concept of resistance that you're talking about. I think you'll read it and just go, "Fah, this is the, this is exactly what I'm thinking." Like, I think yeah. he'll articulate it very well, even though you're living it already. I learn new things, you know, and and I think uh, being able to talk out my perspective and listen to your perspective and everything. I think that filmmakers should always want to talk to other people. I think the worst thing a filmmaker can do is just have an idea and then just stick with it and just never try to communicate with other people and just only go with that um you'll never grow that way never yeah. grow i think growth is so important yeah those who uh those who fail the most win yes absolutely that's what oh that's what that's what i'm saying and i have fucking failed a lot i can say that i have had a lot of failure and um it has been my best teacher yep. it has been my best teacher like the the act of failing and then getting yourself together and trying again is literally like an incredible feeling. And you literally are like reborn when you do it. Um, but it's hard. It's the hardest yeah. thing to even accept that you failed, you know, cause you, you know, I, I've been through times where you just want to blame everything else. Then you get to the point where you start blaming the universe, like, Oh, the fucking universe. As soon as I stopped doing that and I, and I took accountability for myself, that's when you get so powerful. Do uh not to ask you another question, even though we technically signed off, but do you remember do you remember that what was the thing that 
switch that for you? Was it like an, uh, a hard lesson or was it like something you researched or like, when was that pivot point? Um, cause it sounds like you're saying there was like a moment where you stopped or was yeah. it just kind of gradual? I mean, I, I think it was gradual. I, it was definitely through film school. It was, um, you know, doing projects with people that, that didn't work out. It was, um, doing things where, you know, I'd have films that would get canceled and, or I would, I would be shooting something and I would fuck up and, and, you know, maybe I would piss off an actor or do something and it did, just wouldn't work out. You know, just things like that, things that were easy to, to try to blame everyone else for and be like, oh, it was because of this and this. Once I started realizing like I am accountability, if, if I am directing a film, if I am leading it, I'm a leader. So if things are fucking up under my direction, if things are happening in the sidelines and it's ruining everything, like I need to take responsibility for that because I'm a leader. Um, I, yeah, I, th- I think that's what it is. I think I think that's where the failure really comes from. It's just like, you know, trying to start a film and not working relationships, lots of failures in relationships. You know, maybe it maybe it is someone who was incredibly hard to work with and I didn't enjoy working with them, but. A lot of the times the way I handled it was not as good as it could have been. And nowadays I work with tons of very difficult people. I have actors that don't get along with each other, but it's not my job to be like, all right, like fuck you then and start talking to them like that and, and, and responding with the same type of energy. It's my responsibility to be the one that mends it and keeps everything civil and moving forward. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of where I've come. I mean, obviously you got people who are crazy and you, have to get rid of them. But sure. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just never reacting based off just pure emotion is the biggest thing. Cause I used to do that a ton and I don't do that. Anymore. I think, and I react accordingly. I try to react logically. Um, and I give myself time. I don't do it just instantly anymore. Thanks again for spending the time Thanks. with me. A lot of fun. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see you around. All right. Thank you so much. Kenny. For sure, man. Later. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the Ethidart Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening.